Yo, this is Steve Bloom, and you're watching Moana Nui Podcast. We'll be starting soon. Don't go anywhere. I'm Veronica Taylor. I'm from myself and Ash Ketchum. I just want to say, Moana Nui, I choose you! And welcome to the Moana Nui podcast. We're so happy to have you to join us for our 8.30 p.m. episode. I hope you enjoyed our 7 p.m. episode, which we had the opportunity to talk to the iconic uh, Bill Farmer, who is best known as the official voice actor uh, for Walt Disney's Goofy. Uh, and he's also the voice actor from in the movie Space Jam of Foghorn, Leghorn, and Yosemite Sam, along with Goofy. And then after uh, talking with him, we talked with Jason Marsden, who is known for his roles in Full House, Boy Meets World, Step by Step, but most properly known as the voice actor for Max from a Goofy movie, and also the voice of Haku from Spirited Away and his role in Hocus Pocus, and Kovu from uh, Lion King 2. So, of course, we're excited to start this next episode for our monthly series that we have with Su Ann Hong on Develop Your Talent. And today's episode, we're going to dive into cultural competency. But first of all, of course, I have to bring up Su Ann. Welcome, Su Ann. Hello. And, hello, hello. Happy New Year to you. And I know you are already fast and furious into 2023 already for everything that's going on with the Center for Asian Pacific American Women. Absolutely. You know, I thought things were going to be kind of calm in January, but uh, let me tell you, it's kind of not. No, but it's not. <laughs> here. I can't wait. Uh, to bring our guests to talk about cultural competency. You guys are going to be blown away. They're amazing, amazing people and leaders. Exactly. Well, of course, let me introduce our first uh, panelist. Our first panelist is Leona Enright. Uh, she is currently a business recruitment specialist for the Confederate tribes uh, of, please, you know, make sure I'm not mispronouncing Umatial uh, Indian Reservations, our CTUIR Department of Economic and Community Development. Uh, she assists the organization with their ongoing expansion efforts for diversifying the reservation for the tribe. And then she is, of course, a uh, very 
biz, uh, busy as a member of the National Millennium Community, where she contributes a tribal voice, engaging in conversations and discussions around civ civility and solution finding with millennials and Gen Z community. Let us welcome Leona. Welcome, Leona. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being part of today's show. And our second panelist, Tisa Leggett, it began her career as a journalist before transitioning to the field of public relations and public affairs. Uh, over the last uh, over 10 years, uh, she developed community outreach and educational strategies for corporations and nonprofits. Uh, she is the founding president of the Bridge Fort Worth and was recognized as 40 under 40 by the Fort Worth Business Press. Uh, and of course, uh, she was also appointed as the Blue Ribbon Citizens Committee established by Tarrant uh, County Commissioner's Court to review the future needs of the JPS Health Network. And she is a member of the Fort Worth chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. Um, she is also um, a little bit of a writer um, I've learned about, and she's also the principal consultant at Catapult Social Responsibility LLC. So let us welcome Tisa. Hello, Dana. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. She's had a very busy week, uh, but uh, she, she, we're so glad to have her uh, with That's us today. And last, but definitely, certainly not least, uh, I'm now going to introduce Shima. Uh, she is a managing director of Kapal. Uh, she manages the day-to-day -day operations in addition to long-term development of the organization. She has over a decade of experience working with nonprofit organizations, and um, she uses uh, with her work experience with Asian American Lead, uh, where she was responsible for creating and managing and evaluating youth development programming in the underserved youth in the DC metro area. She combines her love of travel and community service to build a build and run a youth learning emission um, program with a network of nonprofits based in the Sacred Valley of Peru. So help me welcome uh, Shima. Thank you, thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Sue Ann so we can dive into the conversation of cultural competency. Thank you so much, Dana. As always, I really appreciate partnering with Moana Nui, um, incredible women. And, you know, you know, I'm all about women advocacy, so I'm just saying. So welcome, everybody. I have an, uh, the honor of moderating tonight's panel. And I have to tell you, these three women are incredible. They all, and they're all over the country, by the way. We've got the East Coast, the West Coast, and the middle of the U.S. all covered uh, right here. So let me start off by just kind of for our purposes tonight, 
I want to define when we talk about cultural competency, what do we mean by that? And so Webster says recognition of nuances of one's own and other cultures. Cultural competence is the ability of individuals to use academic, experiential, and interpersonal skills to increase their understanding and appreciation of cultural differences and similarities within, among, and between groups. So for the purposes of tonight, I wanted to frame that because we may have all different ideas about what cultural competency is. And it's, I don't think it's a, a, a term that's been around for a long time. So with that, let me start with, um, let me start with Leona first. By the way, she's in her current role for one more day. So uh, let's, can you share with our audience about your background, your ethnic heritage and kind of what is your next step in your career journey? Yeah, yeah, most, uh, most definitely. Nihkwalawit, Anishwanisha, Leona Enright, Ku Leona, or Tiai Pum. I'm sorry, super nervous, but I'm excited to be here. My name is Leona Enright. I am, am an enrolled member of the Umatilla uh, tribe. And I work for currently the Department of Economic Community Development as a business recruitment specialist with the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. And I will be soon transitioning into a new role with the state of Oregon as the strategic director of the tribal initiatives in the tribal affairs unit. So I'm super excited about that. And um, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much, Sue Ann, for the invite. Absolutely. And Leona is incredible. And we'll um, delve more into her background and just kind of her journey a little bit more. All right. Next, we'll have uh, Shaima Ahmad go, who's the managing director of Kapal. Yeah, thank you. Um, wonderful to be here. So um, Shaima Ahmad and I'm with the Conference on Asian Pacific American Leadership. My background is um, I'm Pakistani American. So I um, was raised in um, this country, but my parents immigrated from Pakistan and um, I was here, I think at the age of three months. So I've pretty much lived my entire life here, but um, uh, have my background deeply rooted in, um, you know, the Pakistani heritage. Thank you so much. Tisa. Yes, um, Tisa Leggett. Again, thank you, Sue Ann, for having us at this evening to talk a little bit about cultural competency. My background is in journalism, public affairs, and uh, helping to advocate for those that aren't or don't have the same experiences or the same opportunities as others. Um, and so here recently, I've launched my own um, agency, to help with, with consulting on different cultural issues so that we were able to have equity in different spaces, especially in corporate America and the like. And it's funny, Sue Ann, it, that's such a sensitive question for, for Black Americans sometimes. What is our background? Are we saying we're Black? Are we saying we're African-American? Uh, and, and, you know, so I, I was like, ooh, what would I, how do I answer that question? I would say that I am absolutely uh, Black. Uh, I, we do have African descent, but I can't go back to Africa. I know no one there. So I am truly a Black American. Um, and so um, I would say that this is such an important conversation because when we talk about cultural uh, competencies, how do we address certain issues and certain things without it being media-driven versus truly cultural appropriation and truly cultural faux pas and, and the like. So I look forward to having more in-depth conversation about that. 
Absolutely. And Tisa, one of the things that you bring up that I want to emphasize is that identity is personal. And to me, yes. it always comes down to that individual level. Yes, and yes. so it's kind of hard to generalize in a lot of way. I know we try to do those things. <laughs> what I find is that you just have to be a person. All right. So that's really kind of my conclusion. But um, let me start with uh, Shama. You know, how did you think about your culture when you were growing up since you grew up in the U.S. predominantly, even though you're Pakistani? Did it influence you in a certain way around your career or your life? Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. And so I think I had a very different experience growing up um, in this country. Um, as, as an adult, when I look back at it, I now realize um, that my upbringing was very different. So I was raised by parents and specifically my mother, who was super afraid of raising her children in America in a, in a culture that she was not very familiar with and didn't really have her roots in. And so raised us in a very, very Pakistani-centric family life where anything from like language to food to clothing to you you name it right so it was heavily Pakistani centric I actually for the first half of my life didn't even consider myself an American even though I never lived in Pakistan um, I identified as Pakistani living in this country and um, it's interesting because like the later like recently is when I realized how much of an impact um, American culture has had on me too, since that's what I've known, right? But it's like kind of learning that as an adult and seeing and like tracing back those steps and seeing. But, you know, it boils down to the way that, you know, my family was raised. You know, we weren't allowed to speak English at home because that was just, oh, we don't even, we don't even know English. You know, that was the response that I would get. So that's the way I was raised. So um, really learning about um, what it means to be Pakistani American came much later in my life, I would say, maybe even when I was like, you know, well into college and um, afterwards. Um, and added to that was that I actually spent my undergrad um, four years in Beijing. So, you know, as much, you know, younger in my life, I'm still sort of navigating a whole new culture. And so um, that I probably also played into that role of like, you know, culture and how that impacted my life and future career where I was, it just gave me such a gift, um, this, this window and this peek into what it means to like, um, assimilate and learn about other cultures um, and um, trying to incorporate that in my career going forward. So this is a perfect example of why you can't put people in a box, right? Because like you, there are so many intersectionalities there. And so like if you're forced to put a check mark, you know, in a box, it's very difficult, right? Because sure. you're trying to bring your whole self, all of your heritage, uh, and so that's interesting. All right, Tisa, what about you? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think growing up, you know, I'm from Texas, 100%, born, raised, stayed here uh, throughout my entire life. My my family um, migrated from Alabama. Uh, we have land still there. The, the, our ancestry, as far as slavery is concerned, um, is very real and very uh, tangible for, for us. So when my, on my dad's side of the family um, has land and as more of, of agricultural based. Um, and so going to college, uh, going for higher education, not just doing simply military was something that was um, different for that side of the family. Whereas my mom, um, totally different uh, culturally, uh, family was also military. 
but it's still trying to find uh, their way in America uh, in the sense of, of systemic um, uh, 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 and cultural um, things that happened during the civil rights movement that caused a lack of, and so the hard working, the, the ethics that I have that's within me is, is absolutely for both sides of, of my family, uh, very much uh, ingrained in the civil rights movement. So when we talk about culture, I can't speak on Africa, but I can absolutely talk about the civil rights movement and the social justice movement of today that's heavily influenced by what happened yesterday. Being that my great grandmother, as we are coming off of MLK weekend, actually met Dr. King in church. She was the, the lead organizer in the church in Florida, uh, where the, the, some of the Jim Crow laws to this day still are uh, preventing young uh, people or, or people who are marginalized from being successful from way back in the 50s and 60s. And so uh, I, would, I, I think that it influenced me because it's in my DNA to, to look out for those that do not have, uh, for no fault of their own, um, that we can't quite figure out how to get to that next level or that next step. Um, so culturally, you know, unfortunately, that that creates um, a, a a sense of, of hesitancy when we're interfacing in different arenas and different areas. I know for me it does. So I, I would say that that influenced me heavily within my career because it came to be true and came to light because we had not adequately addressed certain issues prior to George Floyd, prior to um, other issues that have, that have arisen. And so even having a conversation with all of you about cultural competency was black and white. And so it is, it is great to sit here with my sisters of other ethnicities and cultures to talk about how coming to America and how uh, maybe not going to your homeland influences your, your day to day. Absolutely. And Tisa, that's a lot from a, it sounds like there was a lot of history Yes. in your family that yes. really tied directly to civil rights movement. And absolutely. And just by listening to you, when I met you at the Walmart Center for Racial Equity, I saw that uh, yes. you were, your voice is so strong about what you believe and why you believe it. You know, absolutely. Your, your values is what came out. Absolutely. I think, you know, especially when we're talking about equity work and trying to really unpack why we're in certain situations here um, and how to get people to economic mobility and, and really realize um, a dream that it wasn't just Dr. King's, but I think all of us would like to live in a, in, in a place where we're secure. And so when things that are, or when, there's, when there are, are blockades that were created for those of us on the screen not to be successful, whether it be because we're women or because of the color of our skin or our background or our culture, those blockades are very real. Yeah. And so now that we are doing the work and trying to remove them, I just wanna always make it very realistic that I, my family were the ones on the on the battlefield um, uh, continuing this work. My, my uncle, my great uncle is a, a member of the Black Panther Party. You know, and so it's this is this is, you know, who helped with free and reduce lunch. Right. People don't know that, you know, they don't know that it's it's a scary, this scary um, symbol sometimes versus really understanding the historical context and then how that influences uh, people and their lives and, and their offspring and their generations and their legacy. Incredible and uh, just moving in a lot of ways. And the fact that mm -hmm. though its history seems like 
we still are dealing with so many issues of cultural incompetency. Absolutely. So, all right. So Leona, what do you think about uh, when it comes to your culture growing up and then how did that influence you in a certain way in your career in life? Yeah, good question. Thank you so much. Uh, I forgot to mention that I am Latina as well. So uh, my mother is uh, enrolled Yakima member and uh, my dad came from Zacatecas, Mexico. So I, I oftentimes don't think of myself as first gen, but I essentially I am. My dad is from Mexico. He came here and I'm a first gen Latina. But um, I think you know, in my youth, I was really torn, right? So I have two identities that are similar, but not similar. I have my Latina heritage and I have my my tribal uh, heritage. And so kind of blending those together and, and really trying to identify because, you know, I would spend time with my mom's family and then it would be like eating our first foods, our traditional foods, uh, engaging in on the culture, in the uh, religion. And then I would go to visit my dad and it's something on the other page, completely different. And really trying to navigate, you know, uh, his religion, which was at the time Catholicism and trying to understand that, which it's not, if you think back, you know, historically, it's assimilation, right? So I'm, I was resistant to kind of knowing the Catholic church and their ways, but um, a lot of generational trauma with my tribal families and trying to recover from that. You know, um, growing up, I was taught to act a certain way in my house. My opinions were valued. My insight was valued, but then going off the reservation into the school system. So then we have that third party, right? So navigating the tribal life, the Latina life, but also the American life and, and really trying to mix those together. And I really never understood my true identity, but I knew, you know, that I can intertwine all of my cultures to make who I am today. And so that has actually benefited me in, in my career choices. But um, I also lived in Mexico for about seven months. And, you know, when I was sent to Mexico, I did not know how to read, write or speak, not one word of Spanish. But when I came back, boy, did I know. I was like, hola, como están? My dad was shocked. He was like, you speak Spanish? <laughs> But, um, you know, with the Spanish, uh, being bilingual, going into my career, it really helped me in um, outside of the reservation and the hospital settings and being able to translate and help the Latino population. And I worked in the medical field, so it was very be beneficial. But, yeah, <laughs> that is kind of my youth and my career. <laughs> well, I appreciate, Leona, you sharing the fact that you lived in a different country you had to learn quickly and adapt. And the fact is that probably helped you not only broaden, but maybe be a little more compassionate, right? With others on um, whether if they're an immigrant and they don't speak English and whatnot. But so to my audience, I mean, look, these women are so, they bring so many things to the table. There's like peeling the onion of all these layers. So it's not simple. That's one thing. You know, what type of situations did you face that were culturally related as you were navigating through your career and did it help you or hinder you? Tisa? 
That's a great question. I, the way I'm wearing my hair right now is deemed illegal in the United States at one point. The way I'm wearing my hair, that absolutely affects how we think and how we interface with each other, even as Black or African or African-American, depending on how we identify, and for society to see this as unprofessional. My picture on the on, on even the advertising is very different from this conversation because if we're going to have it, then I need to be my authentic self in this conversation. Both of them are authentic pictures of myself, but in professional, in, in America, this at one point in my career would, would hold me back from a promotion. That is the reality. The Crown Act was approved in 2022. And so now a lot of states have adopted that you know, we can wear our hair as we need to in Texas, where I was born and raised. There was a young man who was could not graduate from high school because of his hair. And I just want to sit in that for a second because that absolutely influenced not only how I was, you know, how we think of ourselves today, but even as young children, as a child. And so how the world sees him, a black man. And his hair wasn't good enough. His grades were great, but his physical attribute that represents our culture, dreads, braids, that are very deeply rooted in who we are, was deemed as un, uh, unprofessional, wasn't um, uh, good enough. And that resonates within our DNA. So I would say, absolutely. Uh, I remember when President uh, Obama was elected. And I was at work and I was working in the oil and gas uh, industry. And of course, that the first black or uh, he is to be African-American, truly African-American president that was elected. And it was such an amazing moment, of course, highly emotional. But I work in an all white male environment for the most part and uh, or majority white male environment, I should say. And I remember going to a refrigerator to get some cream for my coffee, and down to get the cream, my colleagues came in and one of my colleagues said, we should just hang him. He should just be hung. He won't get anything approved, won't get anything passed. We're on public policy. I popped up and I said, there's a woman of color in the room. I didn't say black, I just said woman of color. And my boss was in the room and he says, well, when did you become a woman of color? I was proud black woman. I said, when folks start talking about hanging somebody, I'm just going to say woman of color. I don't want to be associated with that in this moment at all. And it, I was 27 years old, 28 years old when that occurred. And I just want to reiterate that we wear this every day. I, I think the, the worst thing we can do is shy away from it. So when people talk about code switching, that is a protectant. That's a protect us. It wasn't to hinder anybody from being whom they are. And we talk about cultural competencies. We talk about the education of people of color. You know, it, it, I, I just, I love the fact we're, we're discussing this, but how I felt um, as, as, as someone who's at work and regardless whether I voted for him or not is not the issue. He and I come from the same lineage. And the term that you use could be used for me. And so it just, it was, it was very offsetting, off-putting. And I never wore my hair in braids. Never, not once I wore my hair in braids. I always wore my hair flat ironed, pressed, relaxed. To relax my hair is a, is a painful process. It burns our scalp. 
We don't talk about it often. People say, if we do it right, it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. I've, I've done it a million times. It's uncomfortable. So that I could go to work and be accepted and look the, the part, whatever that meant. And so I, I would say how it influenced me and my life. I don't know if it's good or bad. That's the scary part. You know, when we're mentoring young girls or mentoring boys and I tell them, don't wear braids to work if you want to get ahead. Am I helping? Am I hurting? Is that culturally competent? Is it not? Who tells the truth and then who protects our children so they can, so that they can, they're able to, to, to earn a living. And so I think that's, that's where I, I go back and forth. But these days, our young people are not having it. They are not having it. And they're saying, we want to be who we are, even at work. We want to show up in our authentic self. So I say, you know, it did influence me. Um, I, I honor these young people for standing up for themselves. And when people say, well, they must not want to get that promotion if they're not going to do what they say, I back them up and say, no, it is time for us to show up as our authentic selves. The way I wear my hair has nothing to do with my brain. First of all, your hair looks beautiful. So let's even, you know, but the thing that really bothers me is the fact that your supervisor allowed that conversation without stopping it. And oh, didn't meaning. stop it. And so to me, you know, whether you're in the room or not in the room, regardless, yep. that conversation should have been stopped. Yep. And so part of, you know, what I think about when we talk about cultural competency is how do these things translate into our work environment? And to your point, does that impact people's ability to get a promotion, Correct. get more money, right? So that's all part of that. And it and it's a microcosm of our community and what's going yes. on there. It just comes into the corporate space and other spaces. So I agree. I oh, agree. So much going, so much to unpack there. Yeah. I think the good news is that as time has gone on, this is the great news, is as we have these conversations, it's painful. I was younger, those gentlemen I still talk to. Yeah. That's the thing. I still talk to them. And and, and not in the sense of they're not my friends necessarily, but even one, the one who made the comment, apologize. Now is doing great things with his life. It's it's an education and an awareness. Yes. Um, and so when we are talking about you know improvement in these spaces, as I look at my sisters um, on the screen, it's like, okay, how can I do better? Also, because when we have our hair covered or we're we're talking about braids and the like, it's still part of our identity. That's right. And we still have to ensure that we're making space and leveraging and advocating for other cultures as well. And that comes from education. And I, as a Texan, never left here, you know, I also have to have an open mind in learning about other cultures and their um, challenges in these spaces. Absolutely, absolutely. Leona, what are your thoughts around situations that you face that were culturally related and navigating that through your career? So I, I came across one um, incident where I guess I didn't realize it and I didn't put much thought into it until it was actually like, really? But um, before, you know, I used to have a really very, um, and we call it a native accent, but I used to talk very heavy with the accent. And um, then when I moved to Mexico, I came back and I had a Spanish accent. So you could hear it in my talk, right? But then I was uh, hired onto a customer service position and I was discouraged. They were like, can you get rid of the accent? I, 
what? I didn't have an accent? Oh, okay. So then I worked really, really hard to try and, 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 and I didn't realize at the time that it was like letting go of my culture, letting go of my identity. But it was brought to my attention from a college uh, teacher. She was like, I explained to her that, you know, like being more articulate with my wording and my speech and, um, that was a goal of mine and she was like wow that's so unfortunate that's so sad that's like losing your identity and i was like oh, you're right it is oh my goodness i never realized that that impacted me you know and working in corporate america like you're expected to conform and that was one thing that it really it's it's sat with me let's say that so now, when you hear my my voice, if it's over the phone, you don't know what you can't tell. You cannot identify my my voice. You you, uh, what culture I am, where I come from, and uh, it's it's a little, little disheartening, you know. Now that now to think back at it, but um, I think another thing too, you know, is that it's that lack of representation, the lack of identity in those workspaces. I don't see people of color. I don't see women of color in leadership roles. And so um, I never had a mentor or um, a sponsor to can kind of really help me navigate through that in my career. Oh, Leona, there was so much there going on. Um, so let me share Women in the Workplace 2022 report that McKinsey Alenin did um, this past that came out the end of the this past September, one in four women in C-suite, one in 20 women of color in C-suite, one in 50 Asian American women in C-suite. And you know what? None of that is enough. And the bottom line is we have a long way to go, but we need people to support our women to get to where they need to be. And it is not always just about talent. It is not. Let me make that clear. You can be just as talented, but all the biases, right, that come along with that. But those are the stats. And so to your point, Leona, we've got to figure out ways to support our women and so that they succeed. And stereotypes and all these things, they can, that can't be the reason why we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Shama, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, another thing that comes to mind is also the way, you know, your upbringing and like the values that you've been taught um, uh, during that time, how sometimes those, you don't even recognize that. So, you know, referring like to the Asian model of respect and respecting authority specifically is something that's so innate within like the values that your parents teach within specifically the Asian community. And I think that that does in a way hinder. I mean, although I'm kind of like in the middle there because I do see the value of that and I see and I recognize it, especially as a mother of three now. And I, you know, when I see the way my children are, be, are being raised in this um, in this country um, and how different, you know, it shows up in them. But I would definitely say that in the workplace, not until well into my adulthood did I really realize how much of an impact that has in the way I carry myself, um, you know, in meetings with supervisors, speaking my truth, bringing my, you know, being heard. And it wasn't until like, you know, one of like a manager, like a, a, a mentor that I still consider a mentor, really, you know, had a heart to heart with me and said that, you know, there is so much more 
that you are able to bring to the table. And I, I recognize that in you, but so there's something keeping you back. Like, you know, what is that? And so really like working on building those leadership skills and seeing that, you know, there's ways to present yourself. There's ways to speak your truth. There's ways to question and push back within those, you know, realms of respect that you've been, that's so ingrained within some of our values, um, specifically in the Asian community. So that's something that definitely also um, is something that I continue to work on. And definitely are called out by my own kids now as an adult. They're like, wow, what are you afraid of? I'm like, oh my goodness, check myself. Uh, don't you love it when they mirror back things and you're like, really? Yes. Yeah. So one of the things you're making me think about is the messaging that I received, you know, when I was younger, which is, you know, don't talk back to your elders and all. And I'm telling you, I had a, I struggled with that when I came into corporate America and when a, like a vice president would walk into a room and I'd be like frozen, you know, I couldn't say anything. I didn't feel like, you know, oh my God, what do I have to contribute? Like all of those things. So that on, even today and, and, and you can probably share if that's true also with the students that come to Kapal. Would you say that some of that still happens with their messaging that they're receiving culturally about how they should behave? Oh, for sure. You, you recognize that. And it's actually part of our training that we work with them in their leadership development is specifically oriented towards that, you know, that, you know, recognizing that that's where they're coming from. And it's yeah. something that is not going to serve them well unless they know how to balance it. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about how, you know, there are opportunities for others to be more culturally competent and what are some of the things that, um, that you know, we seek understanding on. But what about you? How do you stay culturally competent? Do you have examples of that? And I'll kind of open the floor on that one. Do you have situations where you've had to be culturally competent and you had to really make some effort? Yes, I would say so. I think um, for me, number one, working in second chance hiring, second chance work, that's it's it's more complex than I'd given it um, thought because all of these issues that we're talking about of of people who are. Um, maybe not have had a, a, a run-in with the justice system, but those that have had that, so that's one strike, and then having to deal with the cultural um, aspects as well. Um, I've had to help people understand uh, where these individuals are coming from, um, and it could be of any ethnicity. And then also me, myself, I've had to understand uh, where they're coming from. And so I think um, the way to do that is to ask questions and to read on our own. Um, Google is our friend. I think we're in a different space and time. I think it is up to us to take advantage of, of asking trusted advisors the right questions. I have two new friends now, right? So if I have a question, I feel like, you know, I could go and I can ask or look it up. Um, but it is absolutely important to do our own, our own work. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I can add into something that's top of mind for me uh, recently is that um, I work with a lot of hiring managers, um, specifically in the federal government. And we live in a very um, 
competitive world where, you know, all of like your um, applications and your hiring practices are based on like GPAs and resumes and test scores and all of that. And, you know, that kind of puts you on like a pedestal or, you know, really like shines light on who you are. And working with a lot of underserved communities and working with people, you know, students that come from a lot of cultural different backgrounds and different um, privileges and, um, and, you know, not having those privileges as well. Um, it's, it's a conversation I'm having with a lot of hiring managers. I'm like, if you really want to diversify your pool, are you looking to diversify your pool? Or are you looking to find people that look a little bit different, but, you know, bring the same skill set or bring the same, you know, like, what is it that you really want? I mean, because we're going to have to change a lot in order to really if you if you want to bring in this like you know um, real diversification, right? And so um, you know I'm trying to work with them to see that are you open to looking past just the resume and the cover letter and looking at what does leadership look like? What is like what is this person bringing to the table? What are the experiences that they may have that don't shine through that don't translate uh, through test scores? Um, you know maybe you've got students who. We're working like three jobs, you know, and those jobs were helping pay the mortgage or they were the translator or the interpreter for their family. They were the ones who did all the, you know, insurance paperwork for their family, you know, took, did elder care, you know, went to the DMV with their parents because they didn't know how to navigate all of that. So those are a lot of skills that this individual has built up, you know, in a very young age, but they're just not able to see that or even able to relay that through their um, typical cover letter or resume, right? And so, you know, really peeling back and seeing what is, there's more to it than just that, right? And how can we get past it and try to bring in talent that would um, bring a lot more um, to, to, the, to the room? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm thinking, you're making me think about the fact that we already have our labor shortage. I mean, you're going to have to figure out what are you going to be doing differently because you can't operate exactly the way you used to in the past. And so to be more flexible, to be more culturally competent, meaning understanding the individual level, mm -hmm. right, as humans. And I think that's absolutely critical now. Uh, but Leona, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I agree with the, uh, my fellow panelists here. I think listening and asking a lot of questions, right, because I don't know all the answers. I need to reach out. I need to get clarification. If it is a culture or tradition that I'm not fully understanding, I mean, hopefully when I do ask the question, it's received openly and with good intention, right? So I'm always looking to expand my knowledge base because I don't know everything. Um, it kind of reminds me of like in our workplace when we hire, so I work for a tribal government, but when we do onboard new individuals, we have a, what we call tribal acclimation um, process that is actually part of the orientation, which is great because you know, a lot of individuals don't understand our tribal communities or our processes. And, it, and it's okay if you don't understand, okay, well, we'll help you, uh, let you into our, our, our teepee, our village, <laughs> what, what you want to call it. But, you know, it's, it's a process of like understanding our treaty of 1855. It's the process of going to our um, cultural museum, to Masala Cultural Institute, and, and learning the background of our tribal community, our um, customs, our traditions, our cultures. But uh, it really is a learning experience. And, you know, 
I just love to listen. I'm, I'm kind of the person that sits in the corner and waits to, you know, I listen to everything and then wait to ask questions. <laughs> well, you know, despite the whole thing about being an extrovert, you know, uh, being in leadership, introverts have a lot to offer and a lot to say, actually. So I think sitting in the corner and just observing and then having conversation later is not a bad thing. You know, so let me ask all of you this. You know, you all are very passionate about the areas that you're leading. And it, it's, lot, it's very value driven. I mean, that's coming, becoming very clear. Who was one of the most influential people in your life, whether it was a mentor or family member? Who influenced you? And let me start with Shima on this one. Sorry, there we go. I was trying to unmute myself. Um, yeah, um, I was blessed to have a lot of, you know, great mentors and great people who have influenced my life and um, great role models. But um, I think one of um, my maternal grandfather really stands out. And, and there's a reason for that is because, um, you know, for him, core, his core was family. His core was, you know, so he really instilled that within me. But looking and peeling back into who he was and like the, the what he's, what he, you know, what stuck with me from him was um, he really taught me like the importance and the value of human connection. And when I think about that now and think about, you know, where he was raised and what life he lived and where, you know, the, um, the society was brought in and being able to push back on all of that and build that human, human connection and relationships, whether it was in the home or whether it was out, it, he really kind of emulated this, you know, regardless of age, you know, regardless of class, regardless of privilege, you can build and you can get past that and meet someone halfway and really get to know where they are. And this was, you know, um, way back in the day, and especially in a very classist society where he grew up, you know, in India and Pakistan, and um, being able to push those boundaries and um, build that human connection, it still really resonates with me. And I, I try to bring that in into all of my, you know, um, relationships. Yeah, he was ahead of his time. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, it's not about, it's always about relationships at the end of the day, right? Anything you get done, anything you're trying to do, it's going to take relationships. So, Leona, how about you? Who influenced you? Um, like Shaima, I had had many people that have influenced me over my you know, lifetime. But the one that sticks out most to me is my grandmother. I was raised with her and she was very, very strong indigenous woman. She was the matriarch of our family. And it was apparent that uh, she was a little bossy too, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, because um, she instilled the values in me that it's okay to have a voice. And, you know, I'm finding now that there is a inequities between genders. And I, I'm here to fight the good fight. Women are deserving. We need equal pay. We need <laughs> all equal rights for everything. But she was just such a strong advocate for women's rights. And, you know, apart from the generational trauma that she had experienced, her and my grandfather, it, it really was just evident that, that that was kind of where my role was going to be, was advocacy for women and advocacy for my uh, my culture my my tribe well first of all do you think if it were a man that she would, he would be called bossy it would be leadership <laughs> well that's so why she, I'm she like, no, she's a leader. 
That's right. She was a leader. Yeah. I always, like, I always sit there and go, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got different terms depending on the gender, right? Of how this, uh, these characteristics come out. I'm going to call it leadership. Thank you very much. Tisa, how about you? Who was the most influential for you? I, I would say the same. I have a, a strong village, but because I only got a minute on this, two minutes on this question, I'm going to also say like uh, uh, Shima, that my um, maternal grandfather mm -hmm. um, as well, he was able to, to break a cycle um, himself and was a leader in the sense that he went to the military and received formal education. Uh, he was the first. So I still look to him. I'm very blessed to still have him. Uh, with us to this day. And so um, I, I would say not only himself, but also his brother, um, who is it, in my DNA. And so I, I say that they're influential because I look at them and I talk to them and I see myself. And so, it, you know, when something's not aligned or I feel off, um, he, 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 he absolutely confirms this is my design. He said, I dealt with this too. And, you know, he's in his mid eighties and he, made a point that I I don't know I'm not to live through wars and a pandemic, you know, and then to see the equity, the, the movements that have been made. Yeah. I want to kind of give us on a high note and make sure I'm not like doom and gloom. That there is so much to, more to be done, but we've come such a long way. As Virginia Slims, the cigarettes used to say, you've come a long way, baby. So we've come <laughs> a long way. Um, there's still so much more room for us to, to, to go. But he, he reminds me of that, to keep positive and keep going at it. Um, because it was never easy. Yeah. And that's, a, I love the fact that they're encouraging, although realistic, but encouraging, right? So with that, Tisa, like what, give us an example of, you know, when was a challenging time in your career that you can share with the audience and, sure. you know, how did you overcome that particular challenge? Well, you know, I'll be very transparent. I, I was deemed, uh, I, 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 had an opportunity to be the first person of color, woman of color, black person to have a vice president's role here in, in this region in Texas. And that was extremely stressful. I cannot stress that enough. The pressure that was on me uh, for myself culturally, and then from the fact that I was peddled, if you will, she's the first, right? And I don't think we do a good enough job checking on those first. You know, we see these women, these roles, is anybody checking on them? To see how they're doing because you're having to overperform. I'm saying longer, uh, longer hours. There's, there's, there's more expectation. Um, and there was, there's still those biases. There's still those comments that are made. Um, I had junior members of the team that regret they're not report to me. Uh, I'm not saying it's because I'm a woman of color. Maybe that's the reason why, or is it because I'm actually asking you to turn this in on time. You know, and it's coming from me instead of the person you're used to. I don't know. But what I can say is it was not an easy transition. And we've got to be very careful in how we're positioning our women, regardless, yeah. you know, when they're the first. Um, and how I overcame that is to take that pressure off of myself. Um, you know, I, I realized I am here to do a job and I'm going to do it the best of my ability. I, as a woman and as a Black woman, had to say, I can't take on the world. I'm not Corona Scott King. I'm not Dr. King. I'm not, you know, these, these incredible women. I am Tisa Leggett. And Tisa's got to be the best that she can. And that's, and that's good enough. And I think that's, that was my own mental 
um, uh, battle that I had. And so I want to put that encouragement out there. Just do the best that you can. The and best by the way, can. again, my reframing is more than enough. Yes, you're more than enough. More than you're enough. More than enough. That's yes. right. Declare that. All right, Leona, your thoughts. I feel for me, you know, the types of career challenges that I had was um, at one point going to school full time and uh, being having to support a family at home. I am an unconventional college student or I was an unconventional college student. So I returned back to school when I was 26, graduated with my associates at 28 pursued my business uh, degree, my bachelor's completed that uh, a couple years later. And, uh, you know, I said, why stop there? Continue on with my master's. And so it was, it was a lot of years of full-time work, full-time school, full-time mom. And that was a, you know, career challenge for me because sometimes I felt like, wow, I need a day. I need I, I, to prevent burnout, right? I need to take a day from work. And I've had, you know, luckily I've had supervisors that were they recognize that. Okay. Yes. Take that day, take that day. But, um, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, cultural competency, one experience that I've always, it seems like I've always run into it is tokenism. I'm very tokenized in, in whatever capacity it will, you know, if it be on panels, I, I'm the Brown person or, I, I don't know how to explain that more. Tokenism is just, is it is what it is. And, and, uh, I've, I've voiced it m multiple times, you know, my discomfort, like I can't be the only person and just because I'm brown, I don't represent, you know, this community or this community and, and them, you know, uh, my employers thinking that I represent all races when I only represent myself and, you know, my own traditions or my own cultures, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, the assumption that you represent everyone, especially the higher you go and it, and it starts being a little thin in, in terms of, you know, representation. And then yes, that especially comes out, you know, and you're all of a sudden the ERG expert of like all things. Right. Um, but that emotional tax is real for, I think women of color, because we have to explain all the time why we're where we're at. So yes, I feel, I feel it. I feel that I resonate. Shama, what about you? Um, I think for me, it's definitely um, coming into a space as a Muslim woman who wears the hijab that um, over years has definitely become a lot easier. Some of it is probably because the world has become a lot more culturally competent and there's just so much more awareness and there's so many more people like me out there. But, you know, going back to the 80s and the 90s and when I was in college and, you know, growing up and um, not, you know, attending places and workshops and conferences of like three, 500 people and being the single person in the room, um, you know, wearing a hijab is definitely something, especially at a younger age where it's very uncomfortable. You know, it really, you know, you question yourself, you are unsure of yourself. And, um, you know, even having to face absurd questions at that time for like, you know, is there a medical condition why you do this? Or, you know, all of those questions that would be thrown at my way. I feel like, you know, we have come a long way and I think people are a lot more aware. And then some of it is just with age, 
you don't care anymore. You are more comfortable in your own skin and you are able to carry yourself with that. So I think it's a combination of the two. Um, but that is something that I definitely had to navigate. And it was very, um, it was very challenging at times. And it probably did keep me from a lot of opportunities. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to that because it's one, it's how you're perceived from the outside community and how you're feeling, you know, as you're navigating through being the only. Yeah. Right. Being the only causes all kinds of interesting things in our minds. For sure. Uh, and so, so you guys, can you believe this? But we're at, we're we're like four minutes until we're we're done. Uh, can you believe it? So. Let me ask you this one last question. What can you give in terms of one tip or one actionable item that the audience members can do to become more culturally competent? Leona, what would you say? I think my advice would be be your authentic self. You know, I'm finding now that of course as with age, I'm I'm being who I am and accepting my both both of my races and um, you know being comfortable with who I am. And if there's any question, be open to ask it, you know, make sure that it's the timing is right, but make sure to ask the questions and, and don't be fearful of like trying to learn different cultures. And, and I, I mean, I'm personally practicing it every day. So <laughs> I, I want to, I have more questions, but <laughs> I, again, listening, listen, just be open and listen. Absolutely. You're talking about being curious. I like that. Shama, how about you? Um, I would say that reflect and check your own biases and do that continuously because no matter what, how much you think you know, we all carry them to some degree and some level. So really reflect on that, check them, you know, learn, be aware, educate yourself, and then try to unlearn some of that, right? Um, and that's the only way you can contribute to having a more culturally competent world is, you know, reflecting within yourself at first. Absolutely. And you bring up a good point about unlearning in order to I relearn. Know. Yeah, that's really an important point. Tisa, bring us home. I would say be humanely kind. By, by that, I mean, even for asking questions, use humanity in the question, Google the stuff first, and then go ask the question, do the work, unlearn the biases. I think that was perfect. Um, but be humane and treat others as the way you'd want to be treated. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm going to say give grace to yourself if you make a mistake or if uh, maybe you don't say everything right. It's okay. Um, you know, that it's a learning process. So that's what I would say. So with that, thank you to my amazing panelists. What a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And Dana, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Awesome. Another great conversation. Uh, one thing me and Moana always says is uh, Sue Ann brings the hitters to her panel. Y'all, it, it's never anybody that is doing the bare minimum. <laughs> so I would love to thank all three of our panelists uh, for being and taking uh some time out of your busy, busy schedules to be part of this conversation this evening. And thank all the viewers that are watching in and those that are watching this on the replay on on YouTube uh, that you get to watch this. So if anyone you know think you know they need to hear this conversation, share the YouTube link with them so they can go watch it um, and kind of hear all these nuggets that this panel brought 
to the plate. So of course, everyone, I thank you everyone for tuning in. Definitely tune in next Thursday um, at 7 p.m. partnered with MomoCon. Uh, we have Kari Payton, um, best known as King Ezekiel uh, from Walking Dead and also his role as Cyborg from um, uh, Teen Titans. And then we also have Greg Sipes, also known for his role of the voice actor for Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Beast Boy from Teenage Mutant, uh, excuse me, Teen Titans. Uh, they'll be with us at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern. And at 8.30, we have a phenomenal powerhouse woman, Michelle Manu. Uh, she is internationally known for her accomplishment of being a 10th degree black belt. Uh, she is the only woman given the designation of Knight Commander of the Royal uh, Order of Kamakaha uh, the First um, in Hawaii. Uh, and she continues to teach people about um, the promoting, uh, protecting um, the Hawaiian culture through Luha. Uh, so she will be joining us uh, talking about her being a fight coordinator for movies and television series and so much more. So, uh, and about her being in the uh, Martial Arts uh, Hall of Fame. So uh, she's gonna be with us at 8.30 next Thursday. So definitely tune in if you are a martial arts or a cultural, um, love to learn about more cultures and the beauty of cultures. Definitely tune in for us at 8.30 next week. But once again, everyone, thank you for tuning in. And once again, have a great evening and thank you. And we'll see you next Thursday. Bye, everyone. So many stories left to tell Even if we have to ourselves Can't keep history on the shelf If they won't tell it, we will If this the land of the free, it was a freedom then When they annexed Hawaii and called it see the lands Without any type of payment and no signing off Called themselves the Republic in 1894 1.2 million acres overtaken from the native Hawaiians When they resisted, the West retaliated in violence and erasure The Hawaiian language is banned As part of colonialism's plan to expand, yeah Stuck between a rock and a hard place Multiple bombings of Koholave As a part of their ongoing war with Asia Used it as a place for target practice No consent or compensation Colonizers call for annexation No regard for all the locals School will never let you know So many stories left to tell Even if we have to ourselves Can't keep history on the shelf If we won't tell it, we will Stories left to tell Even if we have to ourselves Can't keep history on the shelf If they won't tell it, we will We will So if we put Hawaii in a perspective Well, black and Asian history is interconnected Considering the fight with the Pacific Then of course, versus Asia They was treated as a middleman for war But didn't let the Western colorism run its course Cause dark skin was a sign of dignity to call The land was taken in the name of capitalism When prior to it was an actual kingdom Clap back at the system Suck between a rock and a hard place Multiple bombings of Koholave As a part of their ongoing war with Asia Used it as a place for target practice No consent or compensation Colonizers call for annexation 
Network up for all the locals. School will never let you know. So many stories left to tell. Even if we have to ourselves, can keep history on the shelf. If we won't tell it, we will. Too many stories left to tell. Even if we have to ourselves, can keep history on the shelf. If we won't tell it, we will. So many stories left to tell. Even if we have to ourselves, can keep history on the shelf. If we won't tell it, we will. Too many stories left to tell. Even if we have to ourselves, can keep history on the shelf. If we won't tell it, we will. We will.